0: Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Emma Williams and I'm Chloe Prendergast. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Our goal is that you don't have to be a total music nerd to enjoy this podcast so we put little explanations of technical terms, some background info and excerpts of the music we're talking about throughout the episode. If we miss anything, definitely let us know and we'll clarify in future episodes. We've also linked some Spotify playlists in the show notes with all the
1: music we talk about, so you can go and enjoy it for your own listening pleasure. Today's guest is violist Max Mandel, who has brought in Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola. I met Max through two friends you will hear us talk about throughout this episode, Aislin Nosky and Julia Wedman. Max recorded Sinfonia Concertante with Aislin a couple of years ago. Julia was already on this podcast in episode number 7, Julia and Aislinn are in a quartet together, and Max also mentions violinist Kati Debreceni towards the end of the episode, who we've also had on this podcast in episode number 5. So now you're up to speed on how everyone is connected. <laughs> Small world. Um, this show
0: is listener-supported, so please consider donating to help us keep this podcast running and to pay our lovely friend Joanna Neuschatz for the wonderful work she does helping us edit. You can donate what you feel this podcast is worth to you in relation to what you have. Just head to paypal.me forward slash musicboxconcerts, which we've linked in the show notes as well. Thanks for joining us and enjoy Mozart's Symphonia Concertante.
1: So, Max, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, hello.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> long anticipated.
1: Yeah, long anticipated. Yeah. I think we figured out the tech issues. It's always something new.
2: Um, you know, I, uh, I love my mother dearly, and uh, she'll probably listen to this, and she will just be totally humiliated. But, uh, you know, tech issues run in the family.
0: Oh, Oh, okay. You're rutting her out?
2: It can be a (laughs) challenge, especially in these times. It's tricky. (laughs) Hi,
1: Carol. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So on this podcast, we like having our guests introduce themselves. So do you mind starting by introducing yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Max Mandel, and uh, I'm a viola player, born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm um, Principal Viola of the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, and also a member of the Flux Quartet, and uh, I have a new group uh, sort of appropriate to this podcast, which is called Spoonie Cunie Fe. which is, yeah, say that again, Spoonie Cunie Fae, Um, which is a quintet, a viola quintet solely dedicated to the six quintets of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart.
3: Wow, yeah, very cool. yeah. And where
1: where is that one based? Well, it's
2: sort of international because yeah. okay. uh, I'm in London, three of our members are in various parts of Germany, and one of us is in Italy. So okay. it's sort of... So yeah, Europe. It's a European-based group, yeah, let's oh, say. yeah. Yeah,
1: cool.
0: I mean, for the time
2: being, as long as England is still in, the UK is still in Europe, yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> um, great. So you're a bit obsessed with Mozart then?
2: <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I think it's been a sort of lifetime obsession with Mozart. Yeah? Yeah, yeah.
1: How did that start?
2: Um, well, I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to remember the early like beginnings of when I got into Mozart. But um, one of the things, I mean, what we're going to talk about today is Mozart's Symphonia Concertante in E flat. And I was remembering when I first played it, I think I was in my teens, my late teens when I played it. Um my father said to me, he was like, you know, that third movement always reminded me of you when you were a kid. He was like, when you were about four or five and sort of running around the house, it's like, I just thought you were reminiscent of the last movement of the (laughs) supporting (laughs) country. So (laughs) somewhere it's like in the DNA, like it's in there from an early age. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I was going to ask when did you first hear it or get to know it, but so I guess it
2: was... Right, I think, um, I mean, it's sort of tied up in my path as from a violin player to a viola player.
0: Quick side note, Max just mentioned switching from violin to viola. This is a common story for viola players to start by playing the violin and then at some point switching to the viola for a variety of reasons. The main differences between a violin and a viola are that a viola is slightly bigger than a violin and plays lower pitches, which gives it a deeper sound. This makes a viola perfect for sitting between the high, bright notes of a violin and the really low notes of a cello. Another difference is that violists have to read a different clef, which means that the notes on the page are in different spots to what we usually see as violinists, so that can be a bit confusing sometimes. Also, Max is about to talk about string quartets. These consist of four instruments, two violins, one viola, and one cello.
2: Basically, I started playing viola mostly because I wanted to have a string quartet um, with my friend uh, Daniel Bard. And, um, you know, I just said, yeah, I'm, I like the viola, and I would played a little bit of it. The first time I played it was actually... Um, a Brahms clarinet quintet, which was like really scary in youth orchestra. I had a fingering written over every note, not being able to read the cleft, totally faking my way through it. Um, but I was into it enough that we should start a string quartet. And then um, we did that. Our string quartet was called the Metro Quartet in Toronto. And it was with cellist Rachel Mercer, who's in the um, National Arts Centre Orchestra now. And then uh, helicoptered in from the West Coast of Canada was a young Aislinn Noski. And so this is our quartet that we have for six years.
1: Which started when you guys were teenagers. That's right, yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, Aislinn was 15 and I was uh, 18 um, when that group started. So, uh, yeah, and then fast forward, I don't want to say how many years, but... Uh, some, some time. Some, a, a fair amount of time. Aislinn and I recorded the piece uh, for with the Handel and Haydn Society uh, in 2018. So, um, and I played it with Daniel and, uh, yeah.
3: Amazing.
1: And... um. Before we get too much further, can you talk us through what this piece is? Right. Okay. And any background about it?
2: So uh, this is a piece that Mozart wrote in 1779. And the annoying thing about it is that we don't have any information about it, really. Like, there's nothing in his correspondence about it. We don't know why he wrote it. There's no manuscripts. What we do have tantalizingly is one page... Of the manuscript, which comes from the cadenza in his hand, so we have first the first moving cadenza um, is in his hand. It's a concerto for two instruments, violin and viola, which is highly unusual. Um, it sort of it grows out of the you know concertante, concerto grosso style of having sort of a hybrid, what people would call a hybrid between a symphony and a concerto.
1: As Max was saying, this piece is a fusion of a symphony and a concerto. The title, Sinfonia Concertante, literally means symphony concerto. A symphony is a large composition for a full orchestra, and a concerto is a piece for one or more soloists with the orchestra accompanying them. So this piece kind of gives us the best of both worlds. The violin and viola soloists get to show off and play beautiful solo melodies, but the orchestra also gets its turn to do some fun things. Like we talked about in our episode with Guy Fishman, concertos often have cadenzas, where the orchestra stops playing and the soloist or in this case soloists, get to show off. In this piece, Mozart wrote a cadenza for the violin and viola together, which was rare at that time, as the performers usually made them up themselves. And as Max said, the only surviving bit of this piece in Mozart's handwriting is the manuscript of the cadenza from the first movement, which sounds like this.
2: I think, you know, the origins of the piece, I mean, first of all, you know, Mozart was a great lover of the viola and apparently preferred to play the viola all the time. He was a very accomplished violinist. Um, But I think what happened with this piece is that he was on this, he had gone on this tour of Europe he had been all over. He went to Mannheim and he was in Paris. And um, tragically um, his mother died while he was in Paris, while they were on tour. And um, so he, it's written probably on his return to Salzburg and um what i think is cool about it is that it's what you've got in this piece is you've got everything that's great about mozart in one piece mm-hmm. um the first moment what we can say is that he really synthesizes the style that he's picked up on tour so there's this thing called the Mannheim rocket which your listeners may not be aware of but it's basically the invention of a really long crescendo that just builds and builds and builds and builds and then blasts off into space um so mozart in the first it was like, "You want a Mannheim Rocket? I can write you a Mannheim Rocket." Yes. And it's like the best Mannheim Rocket. So it's this long, just steady, steady build that is just—I mean, I get goosebumps just talking about it. Like I was—I get goosebumps like just thinking about this piece. But it's just, it's just incredible build with um, you know uh, offbeats and uh, trills and just this long, long build until finally you just—just it's—it's crazy. so after that, so you've had, you had this incredible explosion at the beginning of the piece and then the solo center, um, which is really, you know, which is, which is great. Um, it's interesting that we have this written out cadenza cause we don't have a lot of those from Mozart. So it's actually quite thrilling to see. I mean, one would imagine that in their time, uh, you, a cadenza would have been improvised by the performer who is often the composer in the moments you know they probably would have worked out some ideas beforehand but it's basically an improvisation in the moment but you can't do that with two players or if you could you know how it It it, takes
1: more planning yeah yeah yeah, it's a harder trickier thing to do that with two people exactly
2: yes so we've got uh you know um in in the first few moments we've got these great written out cadences by mozart which is also part of what's wonderful about it um Other features of the piece are that it's unusual because the viola is in score So the concerto is in E flat major, but the viola is playing as if uh, we're in D major. So that means we have, so we're tuned up a half step and that means we have like open E flat and B flat strings, which just makes for this incredible resonance. So yeah,
1: So you tune your all of your strings up one half step. That's right. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So all the strings get tuned up one half step, and then you just get this bright, um, gorgeous resonance. You know. um,
1: Right, because then it means that you can play all of these open strings where the rest of the orchestra. Can't use this the open strings because those are the wrong notes for the key that you're playing in. That's
2: right. Yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah, physics. Uh,
2: yeah, <laughs> um, it adds. It makes for a lot of compli- complicated. There are other challenges that arise from that, and in fact, you know, a lot of people play it in E flat without doing the scordatura. Oh, really? Um, hmm. They're wrong. That's <laughs> they're, <laughs> that's dumb. <laughs> why would you do that? Yeah, um, I mean, well, why make it harder for yourself? Well. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had this argument a lot, but basically, the the thing is that it's annoying to tune your instrument up a semitone if you have an, like other things to do in your life. Okay, so there's that. So it's like it's a it's, it's a pain, um, and you know, and then adjusting to other people's intonation becomes more challenging. And I will say, as a viola player, we're accustomed to doing a lot of adjusting uh, because we're stuck in the middle. Uh, in the middle with you. Um, yeah, so it's just like so you, you sort of have to you have to deal with violinists and cellists and so you know like it's your whole life you're sort of trained to have these four open strings that you can rely on for resonance and then you can just sort of, you know, quickly adjust if you have to to fix something. But when you have open strings that are not that thing, you know, it's like if you're have an open E flat string and the oboe is playing an E flats, it's not something that anybody is used to yeah sure so uh, sort of your your super fast instincts that you've developed to fix intonation kind of it's feels a little unstable Mm. so yeah
0: we kind of talked about this with um julia's as well when she was talking about scottatura with the bieber sonatas and because that's changing uh intonation or, or tuning every sonata right and she was talking about how difficult that was to your brain just explodes every time trying to keep track of the minute minute changes that you have to make for every time, yeah, it must be the Absolutely. same. Absolutely, kind of deal. This is
2: a lot simpler than like you know the Bieber mystery sonatas um, in the sense that it's just a semitone up yeah. for 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 the viola player, but um, you know it's
1: but also hard because it's just you being tuned differently. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, my, uh, one of my teachers saying, be sure to like, when you do it, be sure to show it to the audience, be sure to tune in front of the audience. so mm. they all go like, huh? Like, you know, what's, <laughs> what's happening? Um, Interesting. yeah. Um, but yeah, so the other thing is that I think Mozart knew, uh, very well that the viola needed a little extra help yeah. kind of projecting. So just brighten that, brighten it up and so you can compete with the violin.
0: Yeah it's a lifelong battle
1: isn't it <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> um when did you first play this piece then you were in yeah
2: i guess i i played it in this at a summer festival in colorado with Ooh. daniel bard uh,
1: where in colorado uh
2: colorado springs oh yeah do they have a festival
1: there? They used to. <laughs> <laughs> this is just me being from Colorado, so I just got excited about this. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah it was it was a long time ago, uh, and yeah, there was like a competition, and um, we just rushed our way through the piece, like just a couple of <laughs> incredibly excited teenagers. Just <laughs> yeah. there's, it is the piece is just totally thrilling and exciting. So there is that you know you get that heightened feeling. Um, yeah, that was that was the first time I played it.
1: Yeah. And you were playing with a good friend. Yes. Yes.
2: Well, this is sort of the thing that I've been thinking about with regards to Mozart and um, the characteristic that his music really is about friendship. Um, I think what I feel the the connection is, is that you do feel like you're friends with Mozart the more you play Mm -hmm. his music and and the more you read about him. Um, So I have this connection, which is that, you know, as a viola player, there's this music is a lot of it is to me about the people who I played this music with over the years. So, um, you know, to move away from Symphonia Concertante, there's these incredible Mozart duos, you know, for violin and viola, um, which, you know, during lockdown in Toronto, I spent some time working on with Julie Webman, your, you know, uh, podcast, uh, friend of the pod. Um, yeah. And, um, she, so, you know, so that's, that's a long relationship that we've had working on those things. And, um, you know, the viola quintets sort of this group that I'm in now is just, is self-selected as in, you know, it's just what we want to play together and we want to play this music together. And that's that spirit of camaraderie that just comes across in the music. So. It's all, you know, like in the um, C major viola quintet, there's a similar contratante movement for violin and viola. The slow movement, the andante is very reminiscent of this piece. So that's a thing that keeps coming back to me um, about Mozart and connecting with people.
0: He definitely writes in a very conversational way, I find, and especially, I mean, when you've got two soloists, they're they're always talking to each other and then making asides back to the orchestra, and then the orchestra is sort of, you know, chiming in here and there. That's right. know, after the, after each soloist, yeah, it's quite a fun, fun thing to do. Um, so have you always played it with friends, like as the other soloist, or have you ever done it with someone you haven't known but yet?
2: Yeah, no, I haven't. I've only played it with friends. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Just nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it, you need to have someone that you trust whenever you're playing any sort of music, and especially if it's like two major solo parts that have to like really sync yeah. well together and, and have a conversation. I mean, it makes sense that you want to have someone that you have a special connection with.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. I was just going to ask um, if you'd played it other times between when you were a teenager and then when you then later went and recorded it.
2: Uh, no, I mean, Ethan and I played it a few times, um, you know, and I, I'm i trying to think. Yeah, I mean, I've played it a few times, but it was just basically the sort of lead up to recording it that like we started doing it around a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing I'll say that there's something about a deepening relationship that happens over decades um, that manifests itself when you're playing music with someone that is really different from your relationship, um, you know, the surface relationship. So, you know, Aislinn and I are really good friends and we hang out and, you know, we talk about all sorts of things, but we can go, you know, months without talking or, there are you know major things in our life that we don't talk about. Even though I consider her one of my closest friends, but when we're playing Mozart together, then we're completely intimate and completely open, a um, hundred and hundred percent connected. So it's this. It's a. Str- I, I'm trying to figure out what it is actually because you get to know someone. Over the years, like the, on two tracks, there's how we actually get to know each other as people and the things we talk about and the things we share about our lives, and then there's the way we get to know each other through playing, and they're sort of existing on two tracks. So
1: and they're sort of separate, but they're also sort of not separate.
2: That's the con- that's the confusing thing to me because, you know, you can be you can actually sort of be fooled by let that I should rewind, not say fooled, but I would just say that you know um, you can you can believe that you have a very deep connection with someone uh, in a musical way, and that can sort of obscure what your connection is like in reality. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. so it's like so you know uh, it is possible. So you you know asked me about like you know trust. It is possible to to trust someone a hundred percent musically. Um, but not really know them as a, you know, as a person. So, yeah, uh, it's
0: a weird thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's a journey for me with, uh, you know, playing Mozart in general, that's the deepening relationships happen over time. Um, you know, as I'm saying, like, you know, the actual friendships in real life and then the actual connection, musical connections with players like Daniel or Islin or Julie. Um, and it's all it's all sort of uh, ebbing and flowing. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting.
0: It is. It's, and, yeah, it's, it's so hard to <laughs> explain it as well. It's a thing like, yeah, we can't even actually put our finger on what what it is and what makes some relationships more trusting or easier in music versus personal and for every you know combination of relationships is different
2: yeah I would say that like you know with someone like Aislinn I can just completely like there are yeah there are areas that of things that I wouldn't want to talk to her about or that we don't but I have to be careful like we have to be careful with each other because we (laughs) blow up and you know like we're, we're sensitive people um you know but when we're playing Like, it's not there. Like, I trust her with my life. Like, you know, there's, I mean, I trust her with my life in real life too, but it's like in this situation, it's just like, I have no hesitation. I don't need to ever worry that I'm going to do something that will uh, annoy her or, you know, like whatever, piss her off. But I I know that she's going to take whatever I offer with a full open heart um, in that moment. And part of that is that we've been through real life stuff together, but a lot of it is just that it's mozart like looking after us you know so like he's provided a space for us to be open with each other
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense actually that the the sort of normal daily things that exist by being normal daily humans that those end up not being in the way as much or at all when you're playing at
2: all hopefully
1: and then all of the barriers can can come down
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: But I I don't know. I want to go back to when you said that you, it's possible to completely trust somebody musically and not know them as a person. I don't know if that's true. Is that true? Because there's some way in which you're knowing them by playing with them that way.
2: Yeah. That's, that's the thing. Um,
1: So maybe you don't know like details about that person's life, but does that mean you don't know them as a person? Wow, this is getting deep. <laughs>
2: it's we've we've gone deep. We've gone deep. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's so good. So we we got deep fast. Um, well, I think that if if I sense that someone that I'm playing with has a different agenda, um, then it, there's a problem. I, I'm there to discover, to try to discover the truth in the music. That's that's why I'm there. Um, and then the other thing is there is to um, you know keep it alive, and by doing that, try to keep keep our very niche uh area like living and surviving um and and then in order to do that which there is an element of you know creating an emotional impact for the audience so if someone is there to if they're there to show off or they're there to get theirs or or whatever it is um or I don't know, be, be the best person on stage. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Like you, when you you run into these people who are, who are doing that or um, they're trying to achieve some goal that is not related to seeking truth in music, then there's a problem. And then I, I, I'm going to have an issue connecting with that person. Um, So, but you know, like we're so vulnerable on stage. It's so exposed. Like, I mean, you can, You know, if you listen to our recording, we recorded that over two live performances. It's edited between two live performances. And we had like one patch session that was an hour and a half. Um, And it was just, you know, it's... It's fiendishly difficult. So, you know, you're up there desperately trying to survive. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you just don't want to make a fool of yourself. You just don't want to be an ass. You know that like there's this, that's the problem with live recordings is that you you have to serve the audience and uh, the microphones, um, you know.
0: Yeah, two very different things.
2: You know, so yeah. I, you know, that's right. So I, I think that I just, you know, I look at it as that I'm there for her and she's there for me. Um, and that's, that element is there. We're friends. She knows that I'm looking out for her. I know that she's looking out for me. Um, so I don't know. I'm not answering your question, but I think that I have definitely, um, you know, if I've, when I've collaborated with assholes, um, they, (laughs) it's like, it moves into this different area where it's like, I find my assholery coming out. And so it's like, let's be assholes together. And that's, you know like, like this is fun
0: you're an asshole i'm an asshole like
2: you know um you know sort of like this synthesis i mean the the ideal thing is that you know you find this place where you come together and, and create create a new energy between collaborators but the thing is that mozart is so true to the human condition and so un- fundamental about human nature in all its aspects that it's really difficult to bullshit when you're playing Mozart. I don't think, I don't think it's possible to, to sound good um, and be dishonest um, sure. when, when you're playing Mozart. It's possible in other music, but you know, with Mozart, I just think he, he knows me, he knows all of us. Uh, he's, and he's accepting of all of us and accepting of all the different facets of humanity and, um, and it's all there in the music, and like, and, and almost in every piece, almost in like every phrase. <laughs> this is the amazing thing. It's like, I don't know how, but he puts in everything the whole human experience into eight bars.
0: go on a journey with him he takes you on the
1: ride yeah
2: for example (laughs) oh
1: yeah give us an example of this go we're ready well
2: i mean to me you know the one of the most beautiful things in all of music is the closing theme of the slow movements of, of this work um what's notable about it is that it's um the soloists don't get this tune it's actually just for the first violin section and the um the first presentation of it is in E flat major. And then the last one is in, the second one is in C minor after the cadenza. And it's, I mean, it's the simplest um, tune that lasts, that's very brief, but you know, the the, the violas and the, the cellos are just kind of doing a, uh, ba-dee-da, ba-dee-da, da 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 And um, the violins just have this, really, really simple, delicate tune. And you feel it when it comes after you've had a sort of quite emotional expression from the soloists, an extroverted thing from the soloists. And when the first violins get that the first time, it feels incredibly wistful and nostalgic and, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, you're looking romantic and looking back at past loves or whatever. And then, you know, just by moving it to C minor, which is the home key for this movement. At the end, you just feel this utter devastation when it comes back the second time, which is that, like, of huge loss and just regret, which is just done by, it's it's exactly the same tune, the same voicing, he's just changed it from the major to the minor, and this tune that he's created can encapsulate all of those feelings.
0: Here is this simple, delicate tune that Max was just talking about, first in a major key, full of nostalgia and wistfulness. And here is exactly the same melody, but now played in a minor key at the very end of the movement, and it has a completely different feeling, one of loss and devastation.
2: What's particularly wonderful about about it is that, you know, it ends on this note of devastation and desolation at the end of the the Andante, and then we go into this incredibly zippy, cheerful third movement, just like right away.
1: Feels such like a party. You know, it's
2: just like instant party after like total, total devastation.
1: Yeah.
0: it is amazing i think also like in the second movement he builds it up so well Mm -hmm. in the kind of i guess the orchestration and and how yeah the different instruments build on different notes to then build that kind of journey to then then it makes it so devastating at the end when it comes in the minor i guess
2: i agree he has a way of piling on um the, the soloists sort of like stepwise one upping each other and, and more and then on top and I no know, know me, no know me, you know, and it's it bubbles the emotion, the feeling just kind of bubbles over.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And then he kicks you to the curb. <laughs> but then you have a potty, so it's fine. <coughs> yeah. It's, um-
2: fine. <laughs> it's the only time I've uh it's one of a handful of times that I've teared up on stage. Yeah. Um and uh it was in university when Dan and I were playing it once and I I said to myself, "I'm like, what? What are you doing? Like, you're you're tearing up on stage. Get a grip! <laughs> like, what, what is happening? Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah. I, I wasn't ready for it. Yeah."
0: Yeah, and also um, we made a little notes of things we like, Chloe and I, when we were listening through. So we put in the trilly bits at the start of the last movement, which is fun. And then also um, you guys then have these bits where it feels like you're about to jump off a cliff. Um, at, like, the end of the third movement. You go to, like, a really high note and then it sort of jumps down. Um, we also really like
2: that bit. That's, like, an unbelievable source of panic, um, yeah,
1: I'm sure. Yeah.
2: Because, you know, you, you've you played this whole piece, and you've done pretty well, and it's gone all right, you know. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then right at the end, you have this ridiculous arpeggio that goes all the way up, and you have to stick the landing. And oh. it's, uh, um, no, that's, that's an unbelievably exciting bit. And what's interesting about it is, uh, what do you do with it? Because there's this There's the question of whether, you know, E flat is sort of a heroic key and it's this triumphant moment at the end of the piece, but it is sort of ridiculous. So the decision of whether to ride, um, I'm going to be heroic all the way to the top and soar and then like, boom, lands, you know, but then also acknowledging that like Mozart is great at taking the piss out of the hero. So, and the fact that he does it twice. So I think Aislinn does it really well on the record, which is i do it pretty straight and i think this is sort of the thing that you have to negotiate it's like which way are you, you know which way are you going to go and which way am i going to go um and she does the like it's even higher on the violin than she does the sort of pulling up as you get to the top which is you
3: know like- <laughs>
2: So, you know, because it's, it is, you know, from one angle, it's completely ridiculous. And I think, you know, when you understand the language, you're able to know where the jokes are.
0: Yeah, there's so many great joke moments all throughout Mozart. I mean, he's so good at that. And just, yeah, taking the piss out of everything.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And you're right that Islam's very good at the comedic timing. She is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, another, another, like, yeah, one of the few times, like, I couldn't stop laughing on stage because of her. It was a uh, Haydn, Opus 33, number two. Yeah, I was like, God. I <laughs> what just, happened? What'd she do? Just it was like she somehow, in it was the the joke quartet. Like, there's a just don't remember. We, we it was in the scherzo movement, uh, which does the sliding bits uh, in the trio. It's like, and she was just being completely absurd. Then the next one actually has to go on with sort of a intimate, solemn violoncello start. And I just couldn't start. For
1: yeah, no
2: way. <laughs> I couldn't it's do it. Like, time out.
1: That's really
0: funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I going back to your recording though. Um, I really like the kind of feel of this this recording, and I think because Thank it you. was recorded live, you can really feel that it's it's real. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing when, you know, if you've got five days to record a whole CD it, just in a studio, it it so easily loses that kind of liveliness and actual, the real human aspect mm. of the music. And I, I feel like you guys really nailed that. So well done.
3: Thank um, you very much.
0: Yeah. But how was it um, kind of preparing for those those two concerts that you recorded?
2: Um yeah, I mean, there was you know we had a lot of lead up. We played it a couple times in advance in different places. Um, we met uh, to rehearse a lot. We consulted with Julia Wedman. Uh, that's an important thing to do uh, when you're going before you do any any anything really. <laughs> Consult uh, with Julia. <laughs> yeah, just just check, make sure that you have her the seal of approval. <laughs> um, so, but I think you know what's interesting is that orchestra you know, she's developed this relationship with them. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, we spend a lot of time working together on our own, getting our vision, practicing together, doing intonation work, you know, just in our apartments in New York or or, or wherever. Um, But then when you come to the group, it's like suddenly everything, especially, you know, we don't don't have a conductor for this recording, so we were directing it ourselves. It just becomes, the focus becomes entirely the orchestra and you sort of stop thinking about yourself. So... You know, my advice to anybody, um, you know, playing a concerto, if, you, if it's not something that you do a lot, is that you should just forget about, you, you're going to have to be prepared to forget entirely about your own parts um, when you arrive at rehearsals, because it's suddenly there are like a hundred things that you want to say to the horn player or the bass section or whoever the viola is um, that you know, and it's suddenly just popping in your head. And so rehearsals can become really overwhelming about, you know, working in detail with the orchestra, especially if there is like open to stuff as H &H and H's, you know, and then you get to the concert, you turn around and go, Oh, right. I actually have to do this thing. That's difficult. I have to actually be, be accurate now. Um, So, you know, it can be dangerous to spend a few days just completely immersed in, in that and forgetting, you know, your own needs. Um, you know, the, the best soloists are people who can just sort of, who are bulletproof, who can just get up and, and do their thing, you know, regardless of what's happening behind them. I, you know, I'm not that way. I don't think Aislinn's really that way. You know, I mean, maybe she's learned to be that way. She has more experience than I do playing concertos. But, you know, so that was fun. That's the, the collaboration with, with the players in that group is, is, was a big part of it and, and really fun. There's a, there's a moment where I have to bring the horns in and they have to sort of come in out of thin air and it's not easy. And I was just being so free and just like, I just didn't want to give a signal, you know, and, and Todd was so great about it. You know, he's really like, no, 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 I got you. I got you, you know, but like, I just wasn't helping, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I really just wanted to make this beautiful, it's like a diminuendo sort of thirds going up, do do And then the horns have to come in on the top of it. But especially if you're miles away from each other on stage, um, you know, and they can't quite hear, but, you know.
1: And they can't sneak.
2: They can't sneak. There's no sneaking. Do you have
1: other particularly meaningful memories of playing this piece, of preparing it, of performing it?
2: You know, there are certain pieces that live inside of me all the time. And there's always the sound of, of this piece is always with me. You know, if the, if you suddenly just wake up with some things going through your head, it's one of, you know, several pieces that do that all the time. Um, Mm. You know, and interestingly enough, like, you know, it's, it's mostly Mozart. Oh, I said that. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> oh, no. Um, uh, I, you know, Figaro pops up in my head a lot. And I mean, there's just so many, you know, things, there's so many viola events in Mozart pieces, you know, this is, you know, I don't know if this is relevant, but one of the biggest, one of the, of traumatic things in, in the life, the life of an orchestral viola player is the G minor symphony of Mozart, which starts unusually with split violas. Like in the symphony concertante, he really likes to write two viola parts, you know, to get that extra richness. But in the G minor symphony, it starts with these violas alone for a bar. So it's sort of in advance of the tune. Mm-hmm. when you sit there as principal viola, basically, like I, I've done it so many times that I sit down and I go, some violinist or some conductor is going to tell me I'm doing this wrong, like every single time, like no matter what I do, like no matter what I do. So I've tried like sort of mind reading. And thinking, okay, this is the kind. This person is the kind of person that wants me to do this, and then I, I guess wrong, or <laughs> or I go, okay, I'm going to play it the way I want to play. It. I'm going to signal to my section that like we're going to do it the way I think it should be done, and then that's totally wrong. And like so, no matter what you do, someone always stops and goes, oh, Max, Max, actually, I was thinking it could be like really from far distance. <laughs> It's like yeah, yeah. I've heard that before. Um,
1: Max, no, it sounds totally great. it sounds. No, it totally sounds great, but... I
2: really like it. I really like what you're doing there. But perhaps, you know, <laughs> could be even softer. And then, like, so you're like, okay, I'm going to do a triple pianissimo this time and then the next time someone's like it's just more clarity i don't really <laughs> hear <laughs> and it's this thing that is it's just so crazy and so wonderful you know that he's done this thing that is is very unusual you know the tune of the g minor 70s da 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 but you get a bar of accompaniments before the tune starts so it's just this total weird freaky cool thing that he does um so of course everyone has to put their stamp on it
1: and i mean everybody realizes that it's a really big deal and a really important moment and that it has to be special somehow so everybody's trying to figure out how do i make this the most special thing ever that's
2: right that's right so it's like uh there's a viola joke in there somewhere that mozart has always
1: they had viola jokes back then also right like i think that had already started
2: (laughs) yeah well the original viola joke is from quants i mean the earliest one that i've read uh Which is that he says, um, if the horn players aren't otherwise occupied, they can play viola. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, like, like just you're a professional at this one thing. So, like, if you're if you're not doing that right now, you can just play the viola. Like, just go ahead, go ahead, play the viola.
1: You'll be
0: you'll (laughs) You'll be fine. fine.
2: Like anybody, a horn player, just just go ahead.
0: Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, and Geminiani was demoted to violas because he couldn't play in time. So.
2: Actually, I know a bunch of violinists that i like to demote to Viola yeah. for that reason. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> violinists can't play in time. Hey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so, was this uh, recording your dream performance, or do you have a dream performance of this piece?
2: Uh, ooh, okay. That's a tough question. I mean, I think given the opportunity to record your favorite piece is a thrill of a lifetime with one of your best friends um, is it just was an incredible joy. Um, but I'm greedy, and I would like to record it many, many times. <laughs> so um, because you know, my experience is that um, you know, when you come back to things, uh, there's just this layering and and uh, uh, of understanding so through the process of recording it live uh, you know in Boston with Aislin, I am now ready to record it again you know like you know what I mean like i'm 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 better for it so you know, I was just sort of um I was reading Opus seventy four Beethoven's String Quartet with some friends this week, and we did a little rehearsing on it. and uh, And I was thinking about when I played that for the first time twenty five years ago with that quartet that I mentioned, um, and just looking at it and going, I know so much more now. Like I know so much more, and like hopefully in another twenty five years, I'll know just as much more. Which I think is the best thing about this job is is that it never the learning never ends and the understanding you know keeps going so, um, yeah so I think that was a dream to record that way with Aislinn um, and there the but the dream there's a, there's new dreams to do it you know, to do it again
1: yeah nice that makes a lot of sense yeah ideally you could have like a re-recording like reunion of doing that again every 10 years or something. Yeah.
2: I mean, my, my, my Steven Dan says, he feels that you shouldn't be responsible for recordings that are older than five years. Like they should just be disavowed because you're just a different person and a different artist. Hopefully. So, you know, yeah, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. I mean um, there's, there's a lot of people that I look forward to playing it with you know, Julie and I have never performed it together. I've always wanted to do that. Um, You know, there's colleagues that I have in my orchestra here who are the leaders in this orchestra, like Cathy DeBretzini or um, Matthew Truscott. You know, we've talked about it. What are we going to do it? When can we program it? You know, so like that's, you know, I have probably five to 10 violinists who like, you know, I would drop everything to uh, play it with them. I'm actually I am on scheduled to play it with Lorenzo Barani uh, next year uh, in Sweden. Hopefully, it happens. Uh, fingers crossed for that. But uh, she's she's in in my quintets and she's the concertmaster of chamber of Europe. And we so we haven't done that together. We've known each other a long time. So yeah, that that would be a really fun one to do.
1: Yeah, that would be really fun. And I imagine the more you play it with different people, the more that that influences everything as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's um, it brings out like a you know b- they bring out a different aspect of your personality, your collaborators, yeah. as as we were saying. I think every one of these people who I who I'm lucky enough to play with, you know, brings something else. I would say, you know, uh, someone like Julie Wedman brings this sort of depth and uh, deep connection. Uh, that is, she's able to tap into that in an unparalleled way. Um, Someone like Aislinn is able to bring that comedy and that joy like no other violinist I know. So I like playing with different people that allow me to access different parts of myself. Um, And again, you know, Mozart provides the space. So it's like he is you are able to be successful playing that piece in a variety of different ways. Like, you know, you can emphasize different parts of it because it's all there.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, Mozart's a lifelong friend.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Lifelong friends, yeah.
1: You guys, what a great way to wrap yep. this yes, up. good, <laughs> good.
2: <laughs>
3: um,
1: we have a final question that we ask at the end of all of our episodes, and so now it is your turn. Um, is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of?
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, basically... There are very few times when I um sort of regret giving up the violin um because i don't I don't really miss the violin um all my favorite repertoire involves the viola um the one piece that I wish that I had sort of stuck it out to play if I just practiced a little harder uh, uh is is the Brahms violin concerto um yes
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and, I mean, it's similar. I mean, you can look at, you know, Brahms is a real classicist and, like, you know, loved Mozart and looked back at forms. But I would say the the introduction of the Brahms Violin Concerto before the violinist comes in, the orchestral tutti, um, is almost as exciting as the Mozart's Symphonic Concertante <laughs> intro. Uh, no, but, like, that's the thing. Like, by the time, there's no piece that by the time the violin comes in, you're just, you're already like, your mind is completely blown. You're just like, you're just, you're so at a peak level of excitement and the violence hasn't even come in yet. And then when the, to be, to be that violinist who gets to come in at that moment uh, must be really good. And I'm, I'm jealous of, of violinists who get to do that. Um, but it's funny that they I think of it, it's like, there's, you know, I'm a chair musician and that's my main focus, but you know, two of my favorite pieces are these concertos, actually. Mozart's and Concertante and Brahms Violin Concerto. And I think it's about those two composers. I would say that their similarity is that they, I don't want to get too psychological here, but they're both sort of introvert extroverts. You know, they, they have both those things going on. So, so you know, when you're playing, and it's an extroverted genre that they're working in. But Brahms and Mozart both have this sort of shy you know, internal Um, side to them. I mean, maybe Brahms more than Mozart, but, um, so I think that that's, that's where that synthesis is that you can have this show off piece that still has that intimacy.
0: Yeah. True. Deep feeling (laughs) as well as then kind of lightening it off and just having a party.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and how can people support you, get in touch with you, find your work, um, just plug yourself for a second.
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) no one likes to plug themselves. No, no, it's fine. Well, what's interesting, what's going on now is the new thing is that everyone is making movies and, uh, you know, we'll see where that leads, Mm -hmm. uh, if people want to watch or not. But my orchestra, the orchestra, of the age of enlightenment is launching a subscription service called OE player. And uh, it's coming very soon. It'll probably be up by the time you guys put this podcast. It's like imminent; it's happening re- really, really soon. Um, and we're creating, you know, new sort of programs. Just they're not live streams. They're like designed, like filmed. They're filmed performances. And something that I'm involved in curating is a series we're calling um, Haydn Under the Knife. And uh, we have uh, taken all of Haydn's string quartets and surgically selected single movements from them. And we played them in the old operating theater here in London, which is London, Europe's oldest operating theater. So there's this sort of like, uh, you know, surgical like operating gag oh my going God. on. It's, it's a little silly. Wow. It, it's it's going to be silly. I haven't seen any cut the cuts of it yet, but it's pretty silly. Um, Perfect but, for hiding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's the thing. It seems it seemed to make sense. So uh, I've got like an old. I'm wearing an old doctor's outfit. It's, it's Good. totally ridiculous. I was going to add. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> there, there, there are costumes. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, so, I mean, OA Player is something that we, right now, while we can't perform for live audiences, we're really investing a lot of time in that, and I think it could be really good. Um, I'm excited about the programs that we've got on there, and um, hopefully people watch.
0: Yeah, I've seen little pictures of the, like, behind the scenes come up on, you know, Instagram and stuff, and it's looking pretty fun, so I'm excited (laughs) to see
2: we're trying to have fun. It's, it's, uh, as long as we can, we can do this stuff, you know, uh, under the current rules, we're just going to keep pumping out yeah. videos, you know, yep. and it's, great. it's wonderful to play together. It's sad not to be in front of an audience doing it, but at least it's, it's keeping, um, keeping our souls uh, yeah. alive. Um,
0: nice. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll put the links to that in our
2: show notes for people. Yep. Great.
1: Great. Oh, Max, it was such a joy to have you. I'm glad this worked out. Yes,
2: me too. So nice. Congratulations on this great podcast. Aww. So many, You've had so many great people. I, you know, it's, it's really fun to listen to and really happy to be, be on with you guys.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Hey. <laughs>
1: for tuning in to outside the music box we hope you enjoyed our chat with max mandel if
0: so please subscribe rate and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it so that the algorithms
1: do their magic and spread the love we'd also love to hear from you if you have any questions or want to share music that you love you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on facebook and instagram at musicbox concerts and twitter at outside music box write in with comments or questions that you have and we'll get back to you Big shout out to
0: Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing, and another fun reminder to donate via our PayPal, which is paypal.me forward slash musicboxconcerts. It's super easy to donate, and these donations help keep the podcast running in lieu of advertising.
1: In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists, one specifically for the pieces in this episode, and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Max is by going to the OAE Player website for lots of great videos and the Flex Quartet website, which we've also linked in the show notes. See you next time outside the music box.